You want to make beautiful buildings that people will love, buildings that people really love being in, that really lift the human spirit, that make them feel warm, included, safe. That's what, that's what architecture is about, that how people feel within their building. Welcome to Construction Host. My name is Hudad, and I'll be speaking with influencers in the construction industry. We'll learn more about who they are, what they do, and what's their passion at work and outside work. Remember, if you like this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to the channel. Alright and welcome. Today I'm with Sean Carter from Carter Williamson. He's uh, well known for his um, lots of awards during a uh, long career that he had in the architectural world and being a chapter president for Australian Institute of Architects. Today we're going to talk about his career, construction and architectural industry in general, technology, sustainability, and the future of industry. But um, if, if you don't mind, let's start from the very beginning. Where were you born and where did you grow up? Born in Western Sydney. Grew up, uh, was born in Seven Hills, actually, and grew up in uh, the northwestern suburbs of Sydney. So a proud Westie, which is really interesting when you think about how Sydney is growing and developing, um, not only from a development point of view, but from an urban planning point of view and even from a political point of view. Mm. So I think that, that was a good... A good grounding, a good background. What was one of the first sort of jobs you did? You did, and what, what were you thinking when you were a kid? What was the sort of job you did? You have any inspiration, or aspiration? Yeah, look, I, I, uncommonly, I was the kid that always knew what he wanted to do. You know, I always wanted to be an architect. Um, I was uh, mum. Mum used to walk every morning, and I used to go walking with her. And mum mm. loved houses. And we'd go walking together and she'd point out all the houses she loved and why. And I was a mummy's boy and wanted to please mum. So I'd come home and I'd, from, from, from as young as I can remember, and draw those houses, generally in plan, sometimes elevation, but mostly in plan. And I'd, I'd dream of, you know, what would be the house that mum would want and make her happy. And so I'd wow. be drawing those houses. So we did that um, for a long, long time. Dad was also a builder, which kind of played into the thinking about um, architecture as a career because Dad could make things. Dad was extraordinary. You know, we were always building something. We were always renovating the house. Mm. Dad was uncommon in that he would renovate and finish, so that's not common for a, build <laughs> a builder's house. But we were always – Dad and I always had a building project going, you know, yeah. whether it was billy carts or bird aviaries or something uh, somewhere, even making cricket bats. We were always kind of making something together. So at the moment, so I was walking around the, the streets with mum, looking at houses and then coming back and designing them. But right. dad, um, from time about 14, I think I was working on building sites with dad. You were just drawing houses or were you drawing all the, all the other things and then that was one of them? Well, I love drawing. So drawing anything was probably um, okay. something that I was doing, but houses particularly. Um, and I, I never thought whether I was good or bad at it, but rather it was a tool for communication. So mm. if I could draw a house plan and show mum and she could see it and love it, that was, 
That was a great thing. Um, I, I didn't do any of that with Dad. Dad, I started off as being Dad's labourer and, and very quickly uh, outgrew my station in, in, that, in that work arrangement. So I think I was a pain in the ass more than anything else. I, I always had a different way of doing things and, uh, and Dad was incredibly good at what he did but uh, I think I annoyed him as much as <laughs> gave him pleasure working together. So um, went to school there around Borkham Hills and did you go to uni after that? Is that... Yeah, I went to Borkham Hills High um uh and i finished year 12 in 1987 which is interesting to think about right now my daughter starts the hsc tomorrow so it's interesting to think uh full circle because children never think you've done anything really and uh so even though we try to offer support given that my wife and i had done the hsc in the past it's it's uh, really heavily discounted but i think that's the role of being a parent but so left uh left um High school in 87, started at um, UTS, studying a structural engineering degree in 1988. Ooh. Then it wasn't even called UTS, it was the New South Wales Institute of Technology, right opposite the old Carlton United Brewery. I mean, I remember going there and you'd, you'd smell the, the brewing beer and you could smell the, the malt, the hops, which was one of those powerful sort of emblematic sort of smells. Every time I smell it, I go, wow, that's where I was at that particular time so I, I started there I, what, what, I what got you sorry what got you to like engineering well was that's it, was it the dad <laughs> that's a great question um year 10 all the way through school I wanted to be an architect uh and then the school advisor from year 11 onwards started working on me Sean why do you want to be an architect you'll only drive a taxi um you don't really want to do that do you really want to drive a taxi maybe you should consider engineering and so I took a, an elective it's called industrial science I think in those days where and the first thing we did we we out of balsa wood we built a bridge and we destructively tested it and um, the whole class did that and you know that was a lot of fun and I thought well if this is this engineering gig where I could build things, things and break them that, that, you know for a young man at 18 that that could be quite interesting um unfortunately uni wasn't anything like that engineering is a science uh and and rightly so uh but I was a square peg in a round hole in fact I remember walking to my first class it was in the tower building level 19 it was a chemistry class and and sitting in the back of that room thinking oh my god what have I done I'm doing the wrong degree like I knew it from the very first class uh, but I was also a kid that walked to primary school, I walked to high school, I'd, they were all within a kilometre of where I lived, so I had a really kind of narrow, sheltered life and I wanted to go to the city and I wanted to go to university and I wanted to experience the life of, of a university student. Um, so when I rocked up at UTS and they had a bar and there was lots of people with similar interests and we were doing engineering, which was kind of then a bit of a wild degree, mm. um, my first three years were fantastic. You know, I kind of turned off that, that voice that was kind of loud saying, this is the wrong degree, and I turned on the voice that said, mate, you're here, have a good time. So, you know, we, we'd play cards at the bar. There was, there was a particular day where we had a late starting class. Often we'd skip that class. We'd, we'd, play, we'd, we'd be at the bar at midday and we'd play <laughs> euchre and we'd have what we call the world championships and we'd play... Right. All, all day and all night until we sort of staggered out of there at sort of 10 o'clock and, and I just thought it was the best life. You know, we had such a great time. Until about fourth year where I, I realised that, you know, um, not doing so well at, at university was probably not uh, a useful means to an end. So I, I started to 
Well, just as I started to get serious about um, engineering, we were, we were into the 91 recession and I was interested in travelling. So then that the recession kicked in, which didn't really... I was doing what's called a sandwich course where you, you, you studied for six months but then you had to work for six months, which I thought was great because you got this practical yes. knowledge and I could try a whole range of different things. So I did road construction, I did construction, I did project management, I did a whole range of things, uh, mm. hopefully to find something in engineering that I liked and then ended up with a construction company and they stuck me on site because I think they, they realised that I was a little bit different from the other engineering graduates. Uh, and they stuck me on a building site with a, a famous architect, actually, uh, a guy called Ian McKay. And we were commercial builders, but we were building uh, a house for Ian, a residential project, which was a great learning experience because so much went wrong. As commercial builders, we weren't programmed to build in a residential kind of way. Uh, but got to meet Ian, uh, he passed out on site one day and I drove him home and spent two or three hours with him and his wife, which was really an enlightening experience. And that sort of started that. Uh, I, I had a girlfriend by then who's now my wife and she's an architect. And, mm. or she was studying architecture then and, you know, all the paths were the sort of diverging towards you've got to go back and you've got to do architecture. So, Like pe- peel back all those things that you... Peels back the, the layers, you know. Cover, you, you cover yourself and trying to keep yourself happy, but... I was also conscious that you work a lot of your life, so... Doing something that I didn't like didn't feel like an option for me. You know, I, I had to really like what I did. I had to love what I wanted to do was my sense. Mm. So that, that was, it, I call it my walkabout period, you know, from probably from 18 to 25, just trying to find what it was in the world that I wanted to do. So, and, and all, all roads, all pathways, looking back now, seemed like it was pushing me towards architecture. Fantastic. How did you make that move? Did you have to go back to uni again, or did you just start becoming an architect? Or? Well, that's, that's another good story. I, um, so I, I left that construction company and worked for another construction company, and I was project manager, design manager, labourer. It was a small company, so I was kind of... Kind of everything, and I so I was I'd been doing that for about two years, and and we got into um, it was with my uncle actually, and we got into uh, Woolworth stores, and so I had to learn a CAD package. I learned AutoCAD, and we had to sort of it was a cut and paste exercise, but you had to make it all fit and come together. And uh, not really happy in that job. Um, and my girlfriend came home one day and she said, well, my lecturer does these tours. They're called tone tours. Mm-hmm. And they grab a whole bunch of students and they drive around Europe for a month looking at, at buildings. Anyway, he needs a bus driver. <laughs> and I thought of you. And here's your chance to look at all these amazing buildings because it was all the, the, the most extraordinary 20th century architects. So that night I rang Tone and I said, look, I, I, I'll be your bus driver. He said, right, you got the job. I resigned the next morning. Two weeks later, I was on a plane with Tone and uh, these nine other students. No, it was more than that. Maybe it was 18. And we had two buses of nine. So I drove one bus, Tone drove the other. And bear in mind, I'm there just as the bus driver, but I was clearly the most enthusiastic student. You know, so I drove a bus. That was kind of that's what that was my pay. You know, I looked after food and whatever. Um, and uh, but there was no cost to me. But you know, my first six days of architecture were six days of Le Corbusier. So visiting all those extraordinary buildings, uh, 
spent um, two nights in La Tourette, spent a night at the Unité de Habitation in Marseille, spent, uh, did the pilgrimage to Ronchamp. So we walked up the pilgrimage trail at dawn, you know, saw the light appear on this most extraordinary building, and we didn't leave till, till dusk. Um, Saw the, saw the works that wasn't wasn't really completed in Fromini. Uh, it was really the most extraordinary. The, f- the first building we saw was the Villa Savoie, which is just on the outskirts of Paris, uh, had just been restored. So here I was getting, you know, the, the sort of rock star start into into architecture, the, the, the crucible of seeing the best. You know, we saw Alto and we saw Corbusier, we saw, I don't think we saw any Khan, but you know, Woodson and there were some extraordinary works. And we, so in 28 days, we studied 66 buildings, um, which felt like just the most sublime experience for me. And so, and, and that, that, I came back and then I started working for Tone. So that, that was it. When you came back, you're like, that's kind of my life. Where you made that decision then, right there and then? Or? Right there and then. Right. Yeah, head full of ideas, head full of architecture. Um, and, and, and you speak to a lot of architects and I guess they... And they'll frame it all differently, of course. Um, but I think that architects that, that, that we don't see it really like a profession. Like, I mean, it is a profession, of course. But you see it as a calling, a life calling. You know, you you feel like you're put on this earth to design buildings and to think about buildings in a certain sort of way. And it feels, you know, it could be like a religion or a, you know, it's it's it certainly doesn't feel like a job. You create spaces, and you could, it's like a form of art, I believe. Like you, you create spaces for people, and with those spaces, you could create certain feelings, or you could provide a environment for people to feel in a certain mm-hmm. way. And in fact, I feel that's like a true form of art, really. Yeah. Uh, well, there's definitely a, an artistic quality about architecture. Um, mm. I've always felt that we should never lose sight of the fact that we're designing buildings for people to be in. Mm to inhabit, to, to, to live in or to, to work in or to do something in. So that, that always feels fundamental. Um, but then, then for me, there's always been a line of inquiry. What, what do we want people to feel in that building? Um, and how do we want to, to, to see it and to feel it? And to, so composition and... Mm. So the, all of that sort of process is definitely a creative process, an artistic process, for sure. Um, bring it to the basically the language that people understand, which is the plans and, you know, drawings and yeah. all that. Um, They're all communication devices, so yeah. tools. Too often, I think, people confuse the tool with the, the design. You could draw with rocks on the ground, and as long as you can convey that idea, you could still be the most right. extraordinary architect. I mean, you think some of the most extraordinary architects, and they're not, they don't actually do necessarily a formal degree. They're just a, a, a very good at what they do. Today, Oando starts as a, a cabinet maker. You know, Frank Lloyd Wright worked for uh, Louis Sullivan, but wasn't trained as an architect per se, but um, one of the greatest architects that, that's ever been. So I know um, there's wonderful Japanese architects that are just finishing the, the, new, the new gallery here in Sydney. Uh, I just want to understand how, how did you get to where you are now. So you started as an architect. Well, well so, so I did that bus tour, I came back, and, and Tone Wheeler was just getting into CAD. So he was hand-drawing, he had a little studio in the old uh, boat sheds down in Glebe that have since gone, and... Uh, and he wanted to get into CAD and no one – he had two people in his office. Mm-hmm. He was the senior lecturer at UTS but had an office on the site and no one could draw 
use CAD. So I said, well, I'll, I'll do that for you. I'll, I'll start that. And th then there was a program called MiniCAD, which is now a program called Vectorworks, which is what we use here. And that's sort of grown and evolved. So I started his CAD drawing in his office, really. So that was... Um, that was straight after the, the tour. So I think, I think it must have been 96. Nice. I was working for Tone. So I worked for Tone for five years and Tone um, had interests um, and a relationship in Melbourne and he was a lecturer in Sydney. And uh, so he was, in those early days, he, he was only there for about half the time. So it gave me a lot of space and a lot of freedom and there were some wonderful other people that worked with Tone that have gone on to have really interesting careers in... Sydney architecture. So we were, there was three or four of us and given, given a lot of freedom, given a lot of license. Uh, Tome was a good person to work for. A head full of ideas, we were talking architecture the whole time and uh, given the time and space just to think about architecture. So we were, you know, incredibly, I mean, I, I want to use the word passionate. Uh, it's too often abused these days, but we're incredibly, we loved what we did. You know, we were passionate for what we, we were doing. So we'd go there and we'd talk buildings all day um, and we'd design these buildings and we'd build them. And Tome was old school where you'd go on site and you'd work with the builder and and building sites were familiar to me. That was a native place. So I'd love to go to site and we'd talk to the builders about how to put two things together and how we make buildings. That was a wonderful place to work. So I was there for about five years. Uh, towards the end of that time, I went back to uni. So I started uh, a degree at UTS. Uh, tried to get into a few unis, uh, end up getting into UTS, but in architecture, and they were very good to me, and that was a very good school. I started straight into the second year. And then Tone's business was growing and changing, so I, I then left with another person that was working with Tone's, and we started an architecture practice. Um, and I was only in second year uni. And uh, no, maybe I was in third year uni then, but I started a, an architecture practice. So, you know, I, I, in my way of thinking, I've been building buildings for, designing and building buildings for five years with Tone. You know, I know how to build buildings. I'd worked with Dad on building sites since 14. You know, and there's a lot of bravado in there as well. So I just started. I felt to start was a good thing to do. Because um, I, I came from an unusual background. I had an engineering degree. I hadn't studied architecture, but I'd worked for a good architect for a period of time. You know, pl other places, other good architecture practices were interested in me, but, you know, I didn't fit a normal mould and that, that necessarily meant that I didn't get jobs. So I thought, well, why don't I create my own future rather than rely on others to create it for me? So, so mm. I just started practice. Fantastic. Well, is that the same practice you have now? Or? No, uh, I started with a, with a friend. Uh, we had a, a practice for three years. Right. And then after three years, we dissolved that practice. And then both of us rolled into our own practices, which are kind of still going today. So, I, so that was 2001. October 2001, October 2004, so almost three years to the day later, mm. I started Carter Williamson. So it's been the same business. I mean, it's been the same name since 2004. Clearly, it's not the same business because we're a lot older and a lot bigger now. How did the involvement start with uh, Australian Institute of Architects? That started a couple of years after or some, wasn't it? Yeah, so I... I you know, then I was, so I'd started Carter Williamson, uh, I, by then I'd moved the business from Surrey Hills back to Summerhill, and uh, I, it was just me and a, and a um, couple, of, um, couple of employees, and so mm -hmm. I ended up getting all these buildings stuck in, then known as a, a council called Leichhardt Council. So I remember I had seven buildings stuck there, and I just didn't have a way to understand, I mean, Inner West Council, it's now Inner West Council, then it was Leichhardt. 
it was batshit crazy, you know. I mean, the, there was really, it was really opaque of how the planning system worked and, you know, here am I trying to make a living and design these beautiful buildings and the council were adverse to any form of development. So I started getting involved in, they were called networks, they were groups of, so groups of architects that were associated to local government areas really. So there was a thing called IWAN, Inner West Architects Network. So I started going along to those meetings uh, and they were interesting people and, and they were, some of them were associated with the institute but not always. Um, so a loose affiliation sitting on the periphery of the institute but just, just trying to get some knowledge of how they worked, how councils worked you know so it was this camaraderie so that was really the beginning so I, I was with them for about you know five years you know I used to run their architecture tours and get involved in their different initiatives but then I wanted to be more involved and have more an effect on the profession and the networks being on the periphery could only do so much. Was it more about the, the, the processes you wanted to improve that or? Uh, so the, the big thing um, was about the awards and right. um, so being a young architect and this is a passion for lots of young architects, but being a young architect trying to get involved, I wanted to, you know, if I was doing good work or if young architects were doing good work, I wanted that acknowledged. Recognition, yeah. Um, and looking at the awards process didn't necessarily see that as ideal for young architects. Right. It was more for established architects. So I started getting involved with the Institute, you know, how could I be part of um, a group that could review their awards processes and made it, make it... A little bit more equitable for for young architects to have a crack. So, and that 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 was my entree into the institute. So soon after that, I ran for chapter council and got on. So I went to chapter council. Did you manage to change that process? I guess made it better for younger architects to get recognised. It's it's been a long process, and there's been lots of people involved um, with with similar thoughts. So. In the end, we worked out what happened was New South Wales was particularly mean with our awards. So we 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 studied Melbourne or Victoria and South Australia and Queensland, and you know it was clear that New South Wales architects were judging themselves far more harshly than other chapters. Um, so what we sought to do in the end was so it, it all changed a bit, and Houses Award came along, and um, but we certainly became more generous in New South Wales. Um, mm-hmm. And with a view that the jury would also look to some of the things that young architects were doing and could acknowledge that, you know, sometimes you look at a $12 million house mm-hmm. and a $400,000 alts and ads and they sat in the same category. Mm. And um, the, you, you want the jury to be able to see the skill in the work that they were doing and to, be, to acknowledge those young architects as well as acknowledging the, the skill and quality of architects that were doing, you know, two three, five, eight, $12 million projects. So all of that's grown and evolved. So the New South Wales chapter of the Institute of Architects, their awards process anyway, is um, a lot more considerate of younger practices. And what, what sort of effect would it have if someone gets an award? Is that like a life-changing? Back in those days, I thought it was life-changing from a career <laughs> point of view. Yeah. Um, now I, I, I'm much more realistic about what it is. I think it's affirmation that you, you are... And it gets praised by your peers, isn't it? Yeah, so that, that's nice to, to have. But what you want to know is that you're designing uh, a building and building a building, or making a building, I should say, uh, in a way that is a quality architecture that is adding to the conversation of what architecture is 
Um, so that's one of the things I wanted to actually know too. What, what's what is it that you're thriving for as an architect? Uh, I, d- I don't think you ever get to to what it is you're striving for. I think. What is it personally you you like to achieve in, as an architect? Maybe is it uh, creating spaces that are beautiful? Is it just to um, I don't know put your kind of ideas on the paper and see them happen is it uh... yeah it's all that uh, look ultimately i think it's you you want to make beautiful buildings that people will love that's really simple language uh it's quite emotive um but buildings that people really love being in mm. that really lift the human spirit that make them feel warm included safe that's what that's what architecture is about that how people feel within their buildings and that mm. that that not only do they achieve the intended purpose, it's a house or it's an office or it's a restaurant, um, but people feel great in being in those buildings. Yes. Uh, and there's lots of different aspects to what, what feeling good in a building is about. You know, it's, it's light, it's space. So when, when architects talk about buildings, they don't talk about rooms. You know, I think that's a pragmatic or programmatic response, more a builder's response. Oh, it's a three-bedroom house, two bathrooms. You know, it sounds like real estate. We here talk about space, um, light in those spaces. Um, how, how do you hold the space, control the space? How do you hold and control circulation? What sort of light quality are we going to get in this room as opposed to that room? Uh, and then in the composition of a building, you know, we have ideas of how we want that made. You know, buildings need to be tough and robust and stand the test of time. They need to look good now, but also good in 10 years, 50 years, 100 years' time. Um, but that fundamental quality you're striving for is that ultimately it's a beautiful place to be in, that, that people really love it, um, and that really makes their life a better experience. I think communication is very important because you want to build a place for the right audience, isn't it? Understanding the, um, either the buyer or the client or what they actually love. <laughs> it's not about what you maybe love. Is it, is it that true? Like you, you need to first understand what they want and give them like in a, in a best way where you think it should be the place rather than creating your own sure. idea. Sure, yeah, absolutely. We, we, uh, we're under, under no doubt here that we are a service to clients come to us for a building and, and you need to fundamentally understand what, that, what their needs are. Uh, but we also see it as a conversation. So, I mean, these days people generally come to Carter-Williamson because they want a Carter-Williamson home um, and there's lots of qualities that are associated with that um, and in that conversation. So we, we have the, this, these ideas, these, these tools of how we like to think about space and light and compose buildings and they, clients, bring their ideas, their hopes, their aspirations. I mean, we're as interested, if not more interested, in the emotional response the client's after as the programmatic response because a programmatic response I need this many rooms it's a ticker box thing you know you just you should absolutely be sure that that's what you're providing for the client um, but equally we ask the clients to to list that but also what's their emotional response you know one of the best briefs we ever had was um, our cowshed house and I remember the owner Nikki Ooh. said uh, Sean look you know we've got two bedrooms here it's falling apart we need three bedrooms you know I'm sure you can do that but what I want I want a building that that is really beautiful to be in and I want to be able to sit here and she pointed to a spot. She said, I sit here with the dog at 11 a.m. every morning and have a cup of tea. She was a, she was a screenwriter and, and, and director. And uh, she goes, and, and that's 
what I want out of the house. So that for me, that was everything that that emotional response to provide Nikki with that little sunny spot where she had a cup of tea. She sat there with a dog and she could process her ideas, just life maintenance, really, you know, Mm. Uh, that was a really powerful response. And that, that was a really easy, limited brief, but also hard and complex. And you you have to work really hard to, to try and to achieve what, what, what it is the client wants emotionally Mm. out of a building. Very good points. And, and, I mean, we spent a lot of time the house or the spaces that we spent a lot of time. We call it concrete jungle some days now, but we used to be in a, you know, a nature, and now we we um, in enclosed areas. And a lot of people, architects now as well, trying to bring plants, so they call it bio bio biophilic biophilic design and all yeah. the rest. And it's all related, as you said, to emotions because. Um, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to believe that when you step into a place, you get a vibe or feeling about it. And that's, I guess, something that you're talking about. Like, what's a vibe that you get out of that place? You know when you walk into a place you really like. Yeah. You, you, you feel it. Conversely, you also know when you walk into a place you don't like and you feel that as well. Um, and to walk into a place and not feel anything, I think that's a, a wasted opportunity. You know, I'd, I'd much rather people walk into a place and it feel shit and they, they you know, <laughs> get a I feeling hate this place got to go, you know, um, because at least you know they fundamentally failed. I mean, that, that, that great median of life is, is sort of mediocre here. You know, we don't, we don't strive um, generally for our housing to be above and beyond a, a certain, certain standard and, and that's probably cost-related uh, as much as anything else. Although if you look at some of the old, I mean, there's beautiful rooms in Federation bungalows, Victorian terraces, uh, Victorian bungalows, Georgian buildings. They, they all had, that was all good architecture, really highly resolved pattern language that delivered great buildings time and time again. Uh, and then we moved into a, a much more mechanised, uh, you know, large-scale housing development. And by and large, that's been project homes and project homes have been... You remember Federation bungalows and Victorian bungalows and terraces, they were all project homes at their time. But we'd, we'd kind of lost some of those qualities of what, it, what makes a beautiful room. Mm. So, which I guess is good for architects because it leaves lots of room, lots of scope for us to come in and then, then mm. uh, correct those problems or hopefully uh, design a, a is, better reality. Is it because you think architects or clients are too scared to take risks? Just trying to be mediocre, like, yeah, you know. Just copy it similar to the other one that was sold and at least we know it's getting sold. <laughs> yeah, look, I think it's largely been economic. Um, so I think there's always this idea of looking to the future, the, the, mm-hmm. being in the current age or, the, or what the future age looks mm-hmm. like. You think of all the cartoons we grew up with with the Jetsons and all, all yeah. that sort of future-looking stuff, although I think we were more future-driven in the 70s than we are possibly now. But... Um, and so then I think it just came down to base economics. So we were, we were deploying uh, developers to build lots of project homes. Mm. You know, you could buy it like you could spec a car, you know. It didn't really have architectural quality in mind. It was copying a certain aesthetic that, that they thought people wanted and, um, and they were building it down to a price point. So that's what people got. So I'm not sure that... Uh, and there's all sorts of economic forces involved in architecture and in, in every aspect of life that, mm. that is a decision maker, you know, raw numbers. Obviously, you've been traveling Europe and probably America too. What do you see Australia or the architectural space, the design of the homes and 
buildings and compare with the rest of the world where we sit. Australia, I think, is leading the world in residential architecture. Right. This this has been the great thing about, I guess, the Dulux study tour and, mm. you know, it identifying lots of young architects that had a particular talent and then they, they took them around the world and showed them wonderful architecture and the idea that they would grow and evolve and become great architects, which a lot of them have. But Australian residential architecture scene is probably world leading easily. I mean, you, you have a look at the work that um, that's done all up and down the, the east coast of Australia, but every capital city in the country really. And that, that architecture is extraordinary, really extraordinary. And it's inventive and it's creative and it's thinking about making home and making place and good urban response and you know, beautiful composition. It's really following lots of different lines of inquiry, um, you know, from everything up from the, the Queensland guys and thinking about outdoor rooms and, you know, lighter weight construction all the way down to Tasmania, which can be different. Do you think, um, let's say, architectural in Australia is unique or are we, let's say, following trends in US or Europe or do we have our own unique profile or character here designing places specifically Australian way, let's say. I think we're doing it our own way. Um, right. Definitely. You, you can look, I mean, you, you can look at our work here and by ours, I mean, a, a Australian work and it's, it varies because climates a lot vary. More harsh and probably... Well, you go everything from, you know, Tasmania or Hobart, Melbourne, which is a lot colder, you know, Sydney's semi-tropical, mm. Brisbane's almost tropical, you go all the way up to Cairns, which is tropical, you know, out to WA and Perth, which is really hot and dry, you know, see some amazing stuff happening in the in the, the inland parts of Australia, and they're all climate responsive. You know, you think of Tropo's work way up in the NT where they really pair it back, and but, mm. but are quite expressive. And it's, you know, it's, it's, it's definitely looking at the site and place that we have and responding accordingly. So um, I think Merkett played a big part in that, um, mm-hmm. that started putting Australia on the map. He, he was this this wonderful architect that was really rigorous and doing these beautiful Miesian, you know, pavilions and every now and again a really heavy Cabusian kind of home and that was really quite a... really put us on the map and allowed us to think about a, a vernacular here and I think that's really, really been supercharged over the last two or three decades where local architects are thinking about the climate they've got, the tools they have, the materials that they have and they're really designing in response to that. I think country now, we're thinking about our first peoples and, and what country means to, to architects, what country means to Australians, the broader context of Australians. You know, that 60 to 80,000 years of our first people civilization here, post-European settlement and what all that starts to mean. So I think there's this endless fuel of ideas that are playing into what, what a local residential architecture is. From you know the brick buildings that we have, and a lot of them are quite uh, you know becoming heritage. The style that they do in UK, I guess, now turning into composites, wall systems, and all the rest, and a bit more better insulation. I guess that's probably what um, also you're referring to. Australia has harsh climate, you know, high UV, and then um, I think more more recently um, we're getting into that iconic sort of buildings too here. I mean, we had at Opera House, we had, uh, we call it maybe Harbour Bridge as well, one of those marbles, but, um, and we're getting into high rises, like, I don't know what you, what your thoughts on the Barangaroo, let's say buildings and 
the few others that are coming up, like the Atlassians and AMPs and all the rest, uh, uh, with the major commercial buildings that actually bring, a, I don't know, like sort of a profile to a city. Mm. Like you go to certain cities in the world, you go for that to see the building. Like you go to Dubai, you want to see the Burj Al Khalifa. Mm. You come to Sydney, you want to see Opera House. Do you think, are we actually fulfilling the architectural um, desire to create beautiful spaces or is, is more around, more to fulfill commercially? Cities, cities are really fascinating places. So if we move beyond just residential architecture and think about city making, so it's more an urban framework or an urban design yeah. question as much as it is an architectural question. Yes. And too often governments, particularly governments, confuse the architecture for the, uh, the the framework or the urban design. So Sydney is extraordinarily convoluted. Uh, I, I suspect it's always had uh, lots of bastard processes that have almost been designed to wind out design, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. And yet we're able to do these extraordinary marvels. So the Opera House, you know, in the top five, everyone's top five more or less, of 20th century architecture, Utzon's masterpiece, finished by some extraordinary architects, Peter Weber, um, Hall, or um, Rick Laplastria. That is a marvel. It's it's more of a marvel to think that we got it here in New South Wales, where governments too often get in the way of a good building. Uh, Bradfield and his vision, being an engineer, um, pr- ma- probably made it a bit easier for him to build this iconic uh, symbolism which is the, the Harbour Bridge. So not only a um, great piece of infrastructure connected the north to the south, mm. uh, but built through a recession so people could look at that bridge being built and know there's hope in future because we were then building the largest steel span structure in the world uh, in 1929 to 32 when the country was in this deep depression. So it was symbolism as much as it was a great piece of infrastructure and, and, and ultimately architecture. Uh, bringing it today, and I think we've had great stewardship at um, the City of Sydney. We've had Frank Sartor as Lord Mayor for a long time, who did a wonderful street furniture and pavement project that really lifted the idea that public domain really means something and the quality of your public domain really tells about the quality of the, the city. You think of those, um, and I did a TED talk on this years and years ago, um, the idea that you let architecture in because actually you always travel overseas to do architecture tours. You just don't call them architecture tours. Mm. You know, you, you, you go to London and you want to see Big Ben and you want to see the House of Parliament and, you know, Westminster. These, they're all buildings. Mm. So we're always travelling to see buildings. But you think of those great cities and they've got, you know, um, I was in Malaga uh, fairly recently and they had marble pavements mm. and marble curb and gutters. And so you look at that and you, you know those people really love their city. So when Sartor came and he gave us the bluestone pavements of Sydney, that really said something about the city. You know, we're talking about the quality of the, the place and the spaces. And fortunately after that there was a few other Lord Mayors of not great note, but then we had Clovermore and we still have Clovermore. And I think she's heading towards twenty years of stewardship of the, the city. Uh, and along with a couple of uh, particular um, particularly good uh, chief town planners, um, John McInerney and Graham Yarn, who have brought design excellence uh, to the, as, a, as a process as well as an outcome to the city. Uh, these have really lifted the quality of the buildings that we're getting uh, in and around Sydney. Now, Sydney is the economic engine of the country. Um, and for us to, and you, you're seeing, you mentioned the Atlassian building, so 
thinking of central as central as the 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 hub and all the the radial elements the spokes to a, a, a city that's growing and changing because central used to be considered the south of the city it now will be the in, in years to come, the centre of it Sydney. It was not the nicest place to be, i got to say. Not the nicest place to be. <laughs> now it's turning into this tech hub with all these ginormous tech companies, thanks to Atlassian for this development, to bring it all, like lift it up, become a Silicon Valley, hopefully. But see, this is, so that's a great way. Let's, let's talk about Atlassian and, and the central and the overall development all there. Yeah. This, is, this is where governments are really getting confused for the... So the architecture is confusing the urban framework. Right. Me personally, I'm concerned the, the state government will get uh, central wrong. You need to have a public-led process. So if you, you've got to get the, the public domain right, the, the streets, the footpaths, the, the infrastructure right before you can put the buildings in. This government ha- has, is confused and gets it the other way around. So... The first thing you know about that is the Atlassian building and there's a new one just been released that goes over the post office. All you're seeing is the buildings. The buildings are the resultant of a good urban framework. So you think about all the great areas of Sydney that we've got right, you know, Martin Place, great urban framework. Circular Quay, great urban framework. The public domain there is is already good and then you build good buildings around that into the areas where you permit development. We don't get that right um, very often in Sydney. So again, with with this state government and looking at Central, they're getting it wrong again. Um, Brangaroo is not a very good example of how you build... Um, Isn't it the changes overall? Like initial concept design was different. Had lo- a lot more urban areas and. Well, you know the um, it's uh, it becomes a bit of a maddening process. So there was an urban, international design competition won by Sydney Architects actually that provided a really great urban mm-hmm. framework that s- had sown 22 hectares on the western flank of Sydney back into the city because it was largely detached. Mm-hmm. You know, it had this great heritage of you know first people's heritage of shell middens. And it also had this um, post-European settlement heritage of wharves. And yet it just became a plaything for governments and developers. Mm. So governments thinking that developers know the way forward. And um, I think Lend-Lease, they had that development and I I, I think they really struggled with it. I think they've not got the public domain right. Mm. Uh, I think they've thrown money at trying to get better public domain by getting better architects and better, better buildings. And that's all good in and of itself but if you don't get the framework right the whole the whole subdivision the whole development is doomed to be less good than it otherwise could have been so i know the government's wanted bigger buildings that you could have asked the the architects to design bigger buildings you know banks particularly were after these big footprint buildings you know and brangaroo have those three three towers um and they're about two thousand square meters a plate Uh, so they're massive floor plates but you could have designed that in a better framework if that was the ultimate outcome. And e- even today you see, you know, uh, casinos, that bastard processes that end up putting casinos on the harbour where the public domain should be. Yeah. You know, that, that just shows you everything that's wrong with how governments think about the public good and the public interest. Is it, is it uh, something, I guess, architectural community could do? Or like, it, well, how can we change this, make it better? Is it getting more... Um awareness for people to be more involved during those processes is it more so as the president of the institute at that time um, there was a, a modification to Brangaroo called mod 8 that I, I spoke at there was a an organization called the PAC the planning assessment mm-hmm. commission it was a government mm-hmm. organization so I represented the institute of architects there speaking against that modification 
Bear in mind, Brangaroo starts at 3,500 square metres approximately as a, mm-hmm. as a development. Um, by the time Mod 8 lands, it's nearly seven, um, 700,000 square metres, I think 694,000 square metres, so doubled in size uh, through that time. And this was just – and this was an inbuilt planning mechanism that the state government put in there so the developers could ratchet up the development. So development – I mean, I'm in the development industry. I'm not – um, I'm not against development. I, in fact, I, I need it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, we need it for Sydney to grow and change as well. Mm-hmm. But development shouldn't just be about development. Development should be about good city-making processes. So you can have great um, buildings as long as it's put into a good urban framework. And the state government doesn't get that. This this government particularly, they've been there four terms um, over 10 years. They, they don't understand it. To, to be honest, the government before them that set up Brangaroo, they clearly didn't understand it as well. So I think, I think all of that is a result of probably 40 years of going down a deregulated path of how governments uh, organise themselves and organise society, uh, where regulation was seen as an evil and the market knows best. <clears throat> Weirdly, that's produced a lot of uh, processes and outcomes that haven't produced good public domain and good things for people. Markets are really abstract things. Um, mm. They're not human things. So regulations, the human aspect within a market that, that makes sure we consider those human aspects. Otherwise, it will only put the dollar first. So I think um, all the planning processes we have now are ultimately a result of that, that way of thinking, that, of that path we've gone down for the last 40 years. And now in the next 20 to 40 years, we've got to, we've got to turn back towards what is sensible regulation. Um, so support industry and, and the market so it still works, but also we, we, there's good regulation there so we get good streets and good footpaths and mm. good development um, that, that suits the people, not just the developers. And here's the thing, good public domain makes better development, um, but developers can't see that because they think, oh, well, I'm, it's, it's charity, I'm, I'm giving this away. But you're not really. What you're doing is if you're making better, better public infrastructure... How do we experience our cities? We experience them all from the footpath, don't we? You walk around Sydney or Melbourne or, or Brisbane, you're all from the footpath and you're looking upon these buildings. You don't buildings. go to the buildings inside of them, typically. Well, you don't go in, inside many of them, but you're looking from the outside going, oh, that's a good building, that's a bad building, you know. And, and if you've got poor public domain that you're, you're viewing it from, you, you, you're going you're to leave thinking that city's a poor city. So if we get the, the, the framework right, the urban framework right, we're much better chance to get the the city right because we've got great architects. You know, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, mm. Australia has just extraordinary architects. They can design wonderful buildings, but we also have they've got to design that within a context of great public domain first. You know, great infrastructure, great places for people to be, and then we design these buildings. You, you mentioned that. I mean, iconic buildings. Now we have powerhouse. Uh, the Salesforce, let's say, I understand the developers, some of them of US or so Atlassian, but they get overseas architects. What do you think about that? Like, what, what's the impact for Australia? Well, that's a great topic, and thank you for asking that question. <laughs> I sound like to- I'm on Q&A. Look, this is a topic that we talk about a lot here in Sydney. I, I, I feel like for a long time, Sydney architects were kept down because companies didn't see their buildings as being mm. iconic or emblematic of themselves, you know, as a container of their values and their principles and their, their raison d'etre. But with the advent, I think uh, we, had a, we had Renzo Piano come here and he did, uh, we knocked down a beautiful building to put up another beautiful building, which was a great loss. But also, again, we, we started to think that, you know, getting international architects here can, you know, 
inverted commas, lift the standard. Well, the standard here, could, you know, was, was good, could always meet that, that, that need. But we Australians, because we're a young country, you know, I think we have this cultural cringe. You know, I think this is, culturally this is talked about a lot. Uh, this view that, well, the Europeans or the Americans would know better than we would. So I think uh, uh, there's a bit of that in playing into... Because, you know, Europeans, they have this whole star-architect kind of um, system where <coughs> architects design a, a really good building. Within four buildings, they're a star-architect. Then they're doing these iconic briefs all around the world. Um, there's no reason why the architects we have here can't be designing buildings all around the world. I mean, we have some of the most extraordinary architects here in, mm-hmm. here in the country. Um, it's just that, that that cultural cringe is really, by and large, from, from a really conservative uh, developer base or, or um, building base, sees that it's safer to get a European here than to get the locals to do it, which is kind of a bit of madness. And a lot of times, sorry to interrupt, a lot of time I realise that designed with like US standards or European and you come and you're trying to match it with the products available in Australia which is a lengthy process uh, like it was even a tap where I feel yeah. I came across which was a US yeah. standard for, ta- for that and uh, but you're right well, we, we might need to give more opportunities to Australian architects obviously as a young country we're not as old as Europe uh, where, where does it start from who needs to support that like is it the developers is it the architects that need to be a bit more outspoken about their work uh, I would always argue that architects need to be their their own best advocates mm. um, architects you know for a really largely a commercial profession we don't have uh, we, we used to have a big government architects office here in New South Wales we don't any longer um, although they play a crucial role uh, so architects, I think, need to be advocates. Um, we here in, you know, with the serious fight and lots of other fights yes. we've had, you know, we're a, kind of a campaigning office. We believe in our values and we're happy to articulate those. Um, so, so architects should always push that. I think governments need to push that. Governments need to understand that from a design, just from an export dollars point of view, that they could be exporting Australian architects to the world and they could be earning, you know, European dollars, English pounds, American dollars, um, and um, they could be paid here into Australia. So we've got this great talent they should tap into. Mm. Uh, but we've really got to get beyond the idea that the Europeans know best because we often get the, 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 the B team or the C team here and the buildings. Uh, there's a couple of buildings going up in Sydney. Um, there's one that's under construction now. doesn't look like it's from a, a well-known uh, British office. doesn't look like a particularly fine example Mm. of a building um, yet the Alassian building is designed by BVN a great Sydney practice yeah. and that looks like it could be a great building so um, we should be supporting local architects although interestingly a lot of those Dutch practices that um, that have gone on to become star architects you know OMA and MVRDV mm. they're all supported by the, the, the ne- Netherlands government they wanted these architects to build their future mm. so OMA and MVRDV and all those other great practices have gone on and done buildings all around the world because their local governments supported them. So Mm. I think the values need to happen first with governments. Governments need to understand they should support their own people. I'm not saying don't have European architects here or don't have American architects or architects from all around the world, 
but understand what you have here and and use those skills because those skills are needed here, but also you can export yeah. them. That's right. And look, there's many conversation even around the builders and some of the builders that they're connected to Chinese government and they're building a lot of our infrastructure projects here in Australia. There's no problem with that, but as you said, Australia is a small country, 20 million people. We, we need to support our local talents. And maybe sometimes I feel, I don't know, correct me if I'm wrong, Sydney or Melbourne, they're a very touristic place. Maybe they think if they bring a European architect, they might know how to bring tourists after that because they've designed something for European um, appetite, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure the governments are that. Uh, I mean, governments and vision tend to be two, you know, almost mutually exclusive uh, things. Unfortunately, we don't have governments that are overly, they don't necessarily have a great vision for the place, uh, unfortunately. Um, look, I don't care where capital comes from um, uh, or where the developers come from, whether Chinese or European or whatever. It's about the... It's about what they're allowed to do and, and how they do it. So, yeah. you know, we work with some Chinese developers and, and they do some amazing buildings, you know. Yeah. Consequently, there's some local Australian developers here that do really, 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 really bad stuff that David Chandler is looking at quite a lot. Yeah. So, um, you know... I, you know, Australia, being a small country, needs capital and to come from overseas. I think the the buying, the, the cultural cringe element is probably the, the greatest driver of why we're getting European architects because suddenly it's, you know, buildings need to be iconic because they are emblematic of the organisation that, that they're building for, the, the, these people, you know. AMP, for example, we, we've just done key quarter with AMP, which is a, a fantastic development, and they got 3XN and BVN to do their tower and they wanted to build in their image. They wanted this to be... So that, that's a whole suite of buildings. It's 33 Alfred. It's the whole key quarter development. And they wanted it to be really emblematic of themselves, but worked with the city of Sydney, worked with great architects. There was one big European architect there that won a design competition with BVN, uh, but by and large, like, mostly done here mm. and invested in a lot of um, up-and-coming architects and have produced a wonderful part of the city. So, so AMP... Uh, despite the troubles they've gone through, there's there's an organisation that really wanted to build in their image and, and create this wonderful part of the city, and that was a reflection of the quality of that organisation. And I think they've really succeeded in doing that. So um, organisations should have this idea of quality, and that and that quality will be reflected back in them. But also investing in their their local people and the skills, because when, whenever they do, from what I can see, it's it's richly rewarded. Absolutely. You mentioned David Chandler. I just wanted to get your opinion on the new um, design building practitioner and, you know, the building act, particularly around the class two buildings as well as the new regulations he brought in. Do you think the role of the architects and the influence the architects have because of that changed? I mean, you mentioned during your conversation when you were first starting to talk about architectural people asking you, hey, you want to be just a taxi driver? Is that, is that changed throughout time? And is it, is it going to a right direction, you think? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think architecture has really grown uh, in the last 20 years. Um, I think architects uh, is, is, a, is a much needed profession. I think the profession has also got um, bigger and has is, uh, got smarter in the last 20 or 30 years. To David Chandler's work i think that that's been critically important again this deregulated market just let um developers rip so then in any 
natural walk of life, you get the bell curve of quality, don't you? You get the, the rare quality right at the top, but you also get the shit right down the bottom. <laughs> and you get this big sort of broad sway in the middle of the bell curve where the quality can be good all the way down to poor. And, and that, 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 that was skewed too, too much to the, the poor side of things. Now, that's build quality. So build quality is a little bit different from design quality, although I do think they're, they're heavily linked. Where you see good architects getting awarded for good apartment buildings, the class two buildings, good architecture has led to good details, led to good building. Um, so I think that's very necessary and much needed and, and, and probably a bit late, but it's good that we've got it to have uh, David Chandler in there. I think that body of work has got to, got to accelerate, but we've got to expect a better standard of building from our developers. I mean, right. developers, bear in mind, we ask developers to build all our infrastructure, so I think we should... Too often we deploy that word as a negative. Mm. You know, it's also a, a positive. Most of our inf infrastructure is done by builders and developers, so we need to we need to celebrate that. But equally, we can expect more of them. Mm. So building quality, which is really where David Chandler's going. So to our conversation before we started this interview was about uh, certain developers and getting ratings that you might yeah. necessarily think they should get. It's not about design quality. It's about building quality so that particular builder we spoke about yeah. had spent a long time honing their processes given that they end up owning mm. half their half the buildings that they develop that they decided that well we don't want defects and and that's a great thing I mean I was, I was speaking to a couple just the other day in a really good development just down the road here and I know it's a good development it's, it's been awarded you know my mother lives in that building my mother-in-law lives in that building so I, I know the quality of the building good architects good developer good builder uh, all she could tell me was about a defect that she had and how mm. that there was water uh, ponding on her balcony and that really affected the her amenity her, the quality of her experience so if you can't get people moving beyond the their defects of their apartment building you know, this class two building you know because we've got this wonderful design legislation called sep 65 that's all about it's design quality, but it's also about amenity, first mm -hmm. and foremost. How do we get better amenity into these apartment buildings? Because th this is the housing infrastructure of our future. Mm -hmm. If you can't get people past, oh, my, my window leaks, my, my deck ponds, you know, um, this window doesn't seal, how can they start thinking about whether they get northern sunlight into their living room yeah. or the quality of, of spaces or they've, they've just stuck got... stuck the basics, I guess. Well, yeah, they've just got enough space. I mean, apartment... You know, if you left it just to pure development, the apartment sizes would be too small. Mm. So they've now got a floor under that. They've got a minimum standard out of SEP 65, which then becomes the minimum standard for the industry and that mm. you design down to that. So, um, mm. so that's been a, a great thing, uh, but a lot more work to be done. I think uh, a companion document with SEP 65 and the apartment design guide mm. should be a, an apartment details design guide where... A lot of standard details from, you know, door thresholds, balconies, hobs, um, you know, the quality of that external facade, you know, how you do windows and subsills and flashings. All of that stuff starts to take, if, if that is enshrined into the fundamental um, build quality of the building and you've got to tick that off and say you've complied with these details, you either met the deemed to comply or you've met a performance standard, then we can't get to the, the real 
crux of what CEP 65 is, which is about amenity and, and how people should be enjoying these, their homes a lot yeah. more than they currently are. I think, you know, yeah, I guess there's, there's a lot of work needs to be done. And thanks to David, he started that journey. He came out of his uh, retirement, literally, <laughs> to start that journey. Um, but you're right, we can't just stop there and just think, you know, because my apartment is not leaking, well, I don't have a fire hazard. I should be happy about it. There's a lot more uh, we, we should expect. And part of it is, I guess, education uh, and from, you know, architectural community to, yeah. to end users to understand what they should expect. Yeah. Some of them they might so, not know. So from a design point of view, so Chandler is building built quality, but we should also expect a, a minimum design standard. So mm. a lot of councils have design excellence provisions that can lead to a, a selection of a certain sort of architect or a quality architect uh, or a competitive design process where you get architects capable of achieving design excellence and they'll have a design competition to mm. to do that. I think that, that those provisions need to expand. So local government local government is, is quite often depowered here by the state. We should reverse that. We should empower them or remove their planning controls for apartment buildings so that we can expect a better quality of buildings so that local governments can be asking developers for a better quality of design or a better quality of architect so that we can get a better outcome. Very good. Um, I just wanted to ask you about sustainability, circular economy, and the talks that is around sustainable design. How important is that in this day and age as an architect to think about you know, all those topics, and do you get a lot of interest now from your clients around them? Look, it's fundamentally important. I think it's always been important. Uh, I think we've just got a stronger focus on us now, now that we've got this climate crisis that, that mm-hmm. feels like it's existential. Um, and energy has been a big part of that conversation for a while. Yes, we get interest from clients. I, I think people generally, I think Australia, Australian people are ahead of governments by and large mm-hmm. around energy, climate, environment, um, they're in front of uh, governments, is my feeling. So they, people come with an expectation to have, if you're coming to a, an architect like Carter Williamson, you're going to get passive solar design, you're going to get uh, good quality materials, you're going to get buildings that last. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that really ticks a lot of the boxes. Um, we, we also go through fads. So we had BASICs here and that was about an energy you know, I think we're just moving into this conversation around embodied energy or constructional energy, which is more of a life cycle yeah. uh, costing. So, so we also get materials and we say this material is better than that one because of this. You know, carbon's a big thing. But what we're not putting it all together with is a life cycle costing. So mm. project homes um, are generally designed to, li- to, to be fine for 25 years. Mm-hmm. That's, that's not a very long time. When we've got no. Victorian terraces in Sydney that are, you know, getting upwards of 140, 150 years of age, that's a, a much better standard of time that we should be looking at. So if we're using all, all range of materials, but materials that will last 100 to 200 years, those materials in and of themselves amortise whatever their carbon input, which is through embodied energy, the making of it and the construction energy, the, the putting it together mm-hmm. component, if you amortise that over 100, 150, 200 years, that's a really great outcome. Or if the infrastructure, like a terrace house is a great building because those buildings can be adapted today and by and large you keep most of the materials, you just generally adapt the backs of them. 
and then so what you all that stored carbon within the building remains within the building. Mm. So even if you're you're adding a concrete extension to the rear, if the expectation is that's going to last 200 years, then in my books that's taking a 150 year old building. Um, extending its life for another 200 years, you're embedding that carbon over a long period of time. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's got if good design quality of, you know, passive solar, so the, keeps the good sun in, gets the good sun in, keeps the good sun out, mm-hmm. it's naturally ventilated, you know, it's well insulated. Those qualities in and of themselves are fantastic. So then you plug in all the other things, you know, you're more your active systems. You've got a roof that you can put solar panels on or you mm-hmm. can collect your, your rainwater. Um, and then what you start to do is build a, a building stock that is really, um, really environmentally considered. Very good. R- super important. Very good. And, you know, we, we touched on it, the, the bringing the nature back. I mean, some, some, some of that I've seen more in commercial buildings, like with this, um, uh, what was that actually, built head office. I was having a chat with my mate, Joe, Joe Carton. He's a sustainability yeah. manager there. They have this wall made of... Uh, moss and algaes and whatever and it absorbs the VOCs and uh, well carbon negative what you call it yeah yeah well we should be um, given that we've got too much carbon in the atmosphere we've got to be talking carbon negative so a lot of the political conversations about carbon net zero by 2050 that only keeps the same amount of carbon in the atmosphere that we end up at 2050 which from what I can read we're looking at 2 to 2.4 degrees C which means whatever we're experiencing now, which feels a bit crazy, right, uh, we're going to be getting a lot worse then. So we have to start taking carbon backwards. And I think, you know, that, that sort of plugs into a, a, a conversation that we like to have here, which is the provenance of materials. Mm-hmm. So you go to your restaurant, you know, and you, you go into a, a Neil Perry restaurant, you can look at the front of the, mm-hmm. the menu and it'll tell you where everything comes from. You know, yeah. we're getting oysters from the south coast and, you know, it's a Sydney rock and it's a large and it's creamy and so you read that and you go oh that for me i want sydney rock when i go to a, a restaurant to have oysters because you know the provenance and mm. you've associated quality with with that sort of material so we need to think about our materials uh, from a provenance point of view where do we get that timber from is it a sustainable source you know we don't want it from a rainforest timber you know we need to understand all those materials so not only is it a carbon input but it's a it's a sustainable um, quality or sourced, and, you know, which uh, is the only way we're going to get towards that. Touched on that very interesting part is lo- a lot of CLTs and structural timber comes from, I think, particularly around France. And, and, and there's a story that because they use atomic um, um, energy, uh, they count it as, I don't know, maybe sustain- more sustainable than what they produce here in Australia, which to use typically. Um, you know, fossil fuel, and it's cheaper as well, obviously. Yeah. Well, if you haven't established nuclear um, power grid, uh, that's one thing. It's sustainable right after you have to, you've got to get rid of the spent rods. And I, yeah. to my understanding, there's no way yet they know of to effectively get rid of the spent uranium mm. that no. goes into them. So I can't see how nuclear is in any way is sustainable. And in any case, it feels like that, that argument's moved on. You know, we've got so many easy... Um, low carbon sources of power, mm. you know, this is where Australia should be an energy With superpower. Solar, yeah. solar, wind, geothermal. This is all, you know, battery technology. This is where this is the this is the avant garde. This is where we need to go. I mean, we talked about lots of things, improvements in general that you feel um, is needed. Um, 
I mean, we're facing lots of challenges at the minute in construction. Uh, I mean, there's a rising cost of material, there's labor cost material on rise, you know, interest rates, all the rest, including in Australia and around the world. Is it just a short-term thing or is it making us to think differently the way we design or the way we build buildings, do you think? Does that have a long-term impact, all these challenges that we have now around particularly cost well it's unique um it's it's post or post pandemic and i think the pandemic thing is the the crux there so we've got supply side issues but we've also got demand demand side issues and they're happening together normally you get one happening not both um so that that is driving up costs uh and i think the the fact that we've we've turned the tap off on immigration or skilled migration to to the country i think has played into a, a a lack of lack of skills so yeah. demand side as well as people sitting in their homes for two years you know being locked out thinking you know my home should be better i want to get on with my building project so that's created so that that's created the demand side problems so that there's a cost thing there but i think the biggest change in the pandemic is really people sitting in their homes wanting them to be better mm. you know and work from home you know it's really was the the pandemic was the big bang for for work flexibility yeah. i think we've uh, really got an understanding that working from home is going to be something we're going to do more of mm-hmm. so then people want to um think about their home more so i think that will that will be the lasting effect out and of this also, process also sorry pushed obviously technology too further uh in terms of connecting with people remotely um which i guess you guys use a lot using a lot of technology to share ideas and share the plans. And, you know, you have the BIM technology now most architects use to share um, around how the buildings look like. Moving forward, how, how important is the technology in general? And where, where do you see that goes, helping you guys to bring, I guess, your ideas as an architect, to, to, like to, to present that? Is, is it something more could be done or do you have everything possible in your hands at the minute oh look i think architects will always embrace technology at some level but i think it's important to remember people are people and you know we we probably haven't changed for thousands of years in terms of you know our intrinsic needs and wants technology for us is a tool and so designing beautiful spaces today is probably no different to designing them 100 years ago you know we have a different thinking about how we put those together and so that that's a their ideas and they grow and change with the time and technology will grow and change with the time. Uh, you never want technology to get to start to be the design mm. itself. You always want it to be the tool so right. that architects can, you know, we, we do a lot of 3D and BIM and, you know, the idea that you can build the building in, in the computer and then, you know, you're going to go <coughs> down a CAD CAM path where you can design it but you can also help manufacture it i think that's a really important part of the process because i think that gets better buildings but the design side that the sun's not going to be any different in the sky in the next couple of thousand years you know people by and large aren't going to change you know their needs and wants are going to be largely the same so technology the obvious things the internet the, the wiring that sort of stuff that'll that'll change over time but the spaces probably won't I'm wondering if you've seen it, but I, I follow tech and AI quite a lot. Recently, there's a few um, companies, including Google, they call it text-to-image, and now text-to-video um, AI produced. So, so you write, and a lot of architects I've seen, they, they get inspiration by it. So you, you write something, hey, I want to 
beautiful place, boho style, whatever, and produce an image for you instantly. I don't know what you think. I don't know if you've seen it first <laughs> or not. If not, I'll send you some info around it. But I don't know what you think about that around AI, basically. And they train these machines, basically, on all the images on Google. So if you write a bird, it knows what the bird is, and it put the bird in the room. Or, or, or you know, the, the heritage-style building with blah, blah, blah. It, it creates it for you. Is that is it good? Do you think it's exciting to, to have that sort of tool to be able to instantly produce things? Is that helping the architect to brainstorm? Whether whether I think it's good or bad is probably irrelevant. I think it, it is and it's going to be going to continue to be. Um, I tend to think about AI in you know, so we like to desi design these tools, we talk about productivity. But we've also got eight billion people in the world. So we you know, if we keep on designing tools that um, take people out of employment, we end up with a lot of people that are unemployed. And and I think jobs are really fundamentally important for people. It gives them a lot of value, a lot of self-worth. Uh, to educate humans is a really critical part of our uh, whole social infrastructure. Um, so I, I think we've got to think about it from a, a government policy point of view and, and about employment and how we want people to be employed. So maybe that grows and changes and we, we see AI as, as efficiency. But I will tell you this one little thing. Um, in Japan, you can go there and you can see this amazing porcelain plate. Mm -hmm. And that's the least valuable plate. You know, it's perfectly made. It's all made with a machine. You know, it's a really good quality porcelain. It's the cheapest plate you can buy in Japan. If you go to, to you know, special you know, artesian places where they have these artists making all these these potters that are making these plates and they're deliberately imperfect. You see the imperfectness in there, you know, they, they wobble and move and they're coloured and all that sort of stuff. They're the most valuable ones. Mm. And I think the Japanese in so many ways, because they've been so urban for so long, uh, are ahead of the game where th their value system is that something that's handmade is the highest value. Mm. And all the way down to something that's machine-made is the lowest value. So maybe that's where we go with AI, where we think about the the bespoke nature of buildings. So, for instance, you know we can with with computers now and CNC routers, and you know we can we can do the most ornate sandstone buildings. You could have machines just routing out these incredible patterns, and we could do the Victorian buildings or the the Notre Dame cathedrals better than they could ever have done in the past. But are we losing something in the process? You know, mm. humans, at the end of the day, humans want to connect with other humans. You know, we partner, we have families, we grow, we engage. You think, you, you know, Summer Hill's this great little village. We go to wine bars, we go to cafes. We do all that because we want to be with each other. So mm. I think these really warm, intrinsic qualities that we, we have will be ever thus. So um, you, you might have a whole range of buildings that you could just press a an AI button and you can get whatever home you want. You might get an Woodson recreation or a modernist thing or whatever. Mm. And it might be perfect, uh, but it mightn't be what people want. People might want to see something more rustic and, you know, something a bit more of them. Lose, lose that essence. And it, it kind of, I don't know, reminds me of when you buy the uh, organic sort of fruits. When you go to the shops, normally calls the Woolies, you see these perfectly shaped, you know, shiny apples. And, you know, you go to an organic shop, they look a bit beaten up, and but they're organic, and, they, you know... Some might also taste better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they taste better. Yeah. yeah. So, again, we're valuing human endeavour. So yes. the organic shop, you know, probably doesn't have, 
you know, the Santos insecticides and pesticides mm. and that sort of thing. So you, the idea is you're getting a healthier product. Well, we'll be good to see how that plays out, though. I feel, I don't know. I mean, commercially, they might look at AI a lot more, and then it, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. But I, I'm with you absolutely. We need to control that. If we don't, yep. it's going to take over a lot of the roles. Well, remember, people can control their own environment. So, um, so AI should be seen like any other tool. That it's just a tool. And that we use it so that it advances human quality and human life rather than detracts from it. Otherwise, you you go down these paths of all those dystopian uh, horror films that you see that you think, well, you know, shit, we've created 1984. And is is that really what we want? So, and and remember, we're in control of that. We can shape that. Buildings with no soul and... I don't know. I think well, cities a, with no soul. Uh, there's you know, an area in or, China. Or, I've watched a documentary to build all these buildings look exactly the same. And it looks terrible. No one wants to live there, I think. They just built it because they just wanted to push uh, for building. And that company went collapsed too in, in, in China. Mm-hmm. Uh, buildings with no soul. And we talked about creating areas for people to be able to walk and you know enjoy their even buildings. Some buildings you, you often see, they're kind of intimidating when you look at them, and I'm not sure if it's purposely made rather than inviting. They, they're just like a statue that stands above you as like, you know, we're the rich, we're, we're better than you, <laughs> rather than trying to embrace you. Yeah, very important. We talked a lot about different topics. I just wanted to get a bit of understanding if you like to share what do you what do you do outside work if you have any hobbies or you follow sports or any particular thing uh sean Uh, i'm a bit sports obsessed you know i do love sport so i follow that what what particular sport you follow uh all the footy codes i'd watch two cockroaches run up a wall to be quite (laughs) frank so the footy codes are like afl like nrl particular team you follow or Look, I'm a, I'm a really um, worn-down Tigers supporter in the NRL. I'm thinking of going for the Panthers because they seem like they're a smarter... They're doing good. <laughs> well, they're a smarter organisation. The Tigers are dumb as a box of hammers, unfortunately. So, yeah, I, I don't mind sport. Um, okay. You know, family, friends is, is a big interest um, mm-hmm. for me. Uh, I love my gardens as well. So I spend a bit of time um, with gardens. Flowers? Well, fruit plants or is it- you know things that are a little bit quirky so I've I've got a carnivorous plant collection that I've had since I was 10 years of age so I've still got that uh, and that's quite big and uh, but also just gardens and how you feel being in them you know mm. so so for me for stress relief I, I'll get into a garden and do some gardening so that's a that's is that a where nice you thing. spend most of your time during a weekend or and then having time with spend with the family so a typical weekend would be a bit of exercise. So exercise now, I'm 52, you know, I see exercise as maintenance. Yeah. You know, it keeps me young, keeps me healthy. Uh, so I do a bit of exercise, you know, spend time with family and friends, you know. Uh, I like to eat, that's a hobby, you know. Right. Good food is, and, and good wine is definitely a hobby. And then um, around home, I mean, I'm fundamentally a homebody. I like, I like my home, I, I like to be around it, so... To, and the garden's integral in, in that. Are you a good cook too? Oh, look, I, I could be okay. I, 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 went, I put myself through university as a short-order cook in restaurants, in part. So, <laughs> right. Uh, and I, I, de- I generally do the cooking for show in my, my house, but not the, not the day-to-day cooking. I mean, I used to do it all, but now it's changed because I, I feel like uh, 
I, I work a lot. Maybe I work too much. So maybe that there's more time for me to, to get into so cooking. So you enjoy the eating of good food? Any, any particular... Well, I like the idea of, again, all these really fundamental, intrinsic human qualities. So we, you, know, you, you bring good people together and to, you share that... It's like the old feast, you know, you get them around the table and you, you, you know, and it's really lovely to make something for someone else, you know, that giving and that that's a value, you know, you know, it says something to them, you know, how you appreciate them. But also great company, you, you get them, you get them over to, to talk and, and you do that around food. And I think that opens up channels of communication, you know, Absolutely. good vibes as we were talking about earlier, you know, and wines, uh, I love good wine. Yeah. Particularly red wine, but to uh, it also then generally takes the takes the barriers down a little bit, helps mm. you loosen up a bit, loosen up, That's so right. you can sit there and have a good time. I, I do love a good time. Do you particularly like any type of food, like Italian, French? I don't know, Middle Eastern. Do you, do you try every type of food? Every type of food. Yeah, um, yeah. I'm going to a Middle Eastern restaurant this weekend. Right, new one that's open in the city. Uh, extraordinary flavors from the Middle East that. I feel like we're only starting to, you know, you can go five minutes down the road here or ten mm. minutes down the road, you can go to Lakemba and there's some extraordinary, you know, cuisine down there that we haven't really fully uh, embraced. Uh, but, you know, the great, the great gift of immigration to Australia has been, you know, not only the people but the, the cuisine they bring and the cultures that they bring. And I think that's, that's a gift and we should – and to enjoy it through your stomach. You know, my, my grandmother used to always say to me, Sean, that you, uh, you can make someone fall in love with you through their stomach. True. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, f- I reckon world peace could be got if you sat everyone down at a table and you, Pretty feed, much. And yes. you feed them. So uh, I'll embrace everything. Yeah. Uh, look, yes, you know, I I'd had to, like, I'm from Italy, I'm from Iran, and obviously I've tried most of my life only pretty much Persian food and when I came to Australia I had to educate myself and my mm. palate look you call it and I got a French uh, partner now and mm. we pretty much try everything and y- you get those you, it's kind of you get experience different feelings and uh, with just eating and it's just it's a simple thing but well different flavors you know like the Japanese have this um this flavor called amami yes that we, we we don't have a lot of in in, no. in in Western culture. I think Worcestershire sauce and, and mushrooms, for example, kind of tick that box. But but every culture has their, their has version their of that. Unique, yeah, and that's that's always part of the travel itinerary. When you go somewhere, you want to try the local food, pair it with a nice wine to bring out the flavor even more. Mm. And um, yeah, very good. Uh, Sean, we covered lots of grounds. Anything else that you wanted to talk about in particular before we finish up? Oh, look, not really, but coming back to a point that we touched on earlier, that architects need to be advocates. Uh, I think everything is ultimately political. If we shy away from that, that basic idea and if we shy away from risk as a profession, I think we, we don't help ourselves. I'm keen for architects to live their values um, and to not only live their values, work their values and express their values through their architecture but, and, and use that as tools for advocacy so that we can get a better built environment, you know, we can, we can have better buildings for people to inhabit. Mm. I think that's really important as a profession to, to give us profile, to, to, make us, to make people understand that we are the interpreters of the built environment and of the world spatially, that, that we should also embrace that. Look at it as a responsibility rather than just a job. We loosely, in New South Wales, we loosely have that as a responsibility. So we, we have to act. So we have an Architects Act. To call yourself an architect, you have to be registered. 
mm. with the, the, the board, Arctic's, New South Wales Architects Registration Board. Mm. Um, and one of the provisions in that act is that we have to act within the public interest. Mm. Now, I think the public interest is to have advocates advocating for, uh, to have architects advocating for what the public interest is. Mm. So that's design quality, it's public domain, it's, it's, it's people first, public mm. first. It's a great career, architecture. Um, it's meaningful. I mean, it's probably not going to make you rich, uh, but it's, it's certainly meaningful and it feels like that you do something with your life um, that can be meaningful to you but also meaningful to others. I think that's really important. Well, we talk about here we're designing tomorrow's heritage today. So if you understand your building in that context or wanting to understand it in that context, I think that means you're going to get a better building. Because it's got to stand the test of time. Bear in mind, heritage doesn't really happen until after 60 years. Greatest risk for a building to, to be demolished is in the first 60 years of its life, which seems a bit antithetical, particularly year one, you've just finished it, you're inhabiting it. But between years 30 and 60 is the danger zone for when most buildings are demolished. So if, you're, if you can design a building that people love it's, and, and they want to keep, it's more chance that it'll be around for hundreds of years, which is great because that carbon's locked in, means the, the, the fundamental qualities of the spaces are, are right and, mm. and the world is a better place. world is a better place, absolutely. Well, thanks a lot, Sean. I really enjoyed chatting with you. I'm sure, uh, well, I hope uh, listeners, I'm sure listeners will enjoy too. That's all. Thanks very much. Thanks for the conversation. I hope you enjoyed this episode. See you next time. Thank you.